If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Rob Attar, the magazine's editor. In today's episode, you'll hear an interview with Dan Jones, the best-selling popular historian who's just published a new book, Crusaders, which tells the stories of these medieval religious wars through an array of characters who participated in them. Putting the questions to Dan was his fellow historian, Dr Helen Castor of the University of Cambridge, who herself has written numerous works of popular history. The conversation took place at the recording studio in our London office, and here's how it went. Dan, we're here to talk about your wonderful new book, Crusaders, an epic history of the wars for the Holy Lands. In a minute, we'll perhaps talk about quite how epic this story is. But the first thing I wanted to ask is, what made you want to write about the Crusades? Um, I suppose there's a, a couple of, of parts to the answer. And one of them is that I'd just done a book about the Templars. So a couple of years ago, I'd, I'd written the story of the Templars, which really is a story of crusading through um, the eyes of one particular institutional group of people, you know, a military order who were at if you like, the front line and also behind the lines of the Crusades. So that had taken me with a limited perspective through the story of the Crusades. But I was also aware while writing the story of the Templars um, that there were just lots of bits that you couldn't include because they don't come into the purview of the of the Templar story. Um, the second reason, I suppose, is that I'm I'm always on the lookout for stories from the Middle Ages that have some contemporary resonance of some sort so that they feel like they still speak to us in a way today. And I think that's certainly true with crusading, um, even if, as I'm sure we'll come on to speak about, we consider the you know, the medieval crusades to have finished either in 1291 or 1492. Um, there are lots of people today for whom the crusades really haven't finished, and they, they range from, um, uh, you know, ex- extreme Islamist terrorists like ISIS and, and offshoots of Al Qaeda, uh, on the one hand, through to the you know the alt right and white supremacist terrorists, on the other hand, um, and quite benign crusade reenactment groups of, of various stripes, uh, the the sense or the word 
or, or terms pertaining to crusading have lodged themselves in the English language and idiom so that you can have people like David Cameron, uh, you know, our former prime minister, launching a crusade to build more houses or, you know, whatever it might be. It's, it's become an accepted part of our speech and, and thought. And so for that reason, it's a story that I think is still worth exploring because it, it allows us to understand a bit more what we're actually talking about and referring to when we when we mention the Crusades today in whatever context that is. And how important it is that we actually know the reality of that story, of that past, uh, in a world now where the past is increasingly getting co-opted in a sort of fact-light or indeed fact-free way. You're wanting to get the story of the Crusades as they were out there. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's right. I mean, if it's if it's a sort of, you know, your local parish council launching a crusade against litter, I mean that's that's slightly <laughs> that's that's amusing and just a bit silly. But uh, for example, earlier this year I was in Sri Lanka when uh, the the country experienced a, a deadly spate of um of suicide bombings in churches and uh, and Western-focused ho- oriented hotels, uh, and the people who bombed those hotels claimed responsibility in, with, within the framework of crusading rhetoric, saying that they were attacking crusaders on a crusader holiday, being Easter. And so, from that point of view, if we are living in a world where people are are dying, um, and that is being justified with crusader rhetoric, it is still worth us exploring what. Are they? What is this actually referring to? What really happened? Um, and and understanding why this is such a, a, a silly and pernicious thing to say in many ways. You mentioned Sri Lanka and and the fact that the, the yeah the terminology of crusades has gone global in the modern world. But when we look at the story that you're telling in the book, how are the crusades defined geographically? Should we be thinking in terms of the Holy Land and specifically Jerusalem as the focus of all of this? Or is it a bigger story than that? Well, that I mean, that speaks to, I suppose, a big historical, historiographical debate within scholarly circles about crusading that's gone on for many decades, which is is to say, what are we talking about here? Let's define the... Um, uh, let's define the the scope of work, if you like. And there are different schools of thought. You know, there is a very narrow view of crusading, which, uh, as you've suggested, is to say that only really um, holy wars preached by a pope to fight for Jerusalem in, you know, let's say geographically, Palestine, um, greater Syria, maybe Egypt, can be classified as crusades. Um and those are the Crusades that generally have numbers, First Crusade and the Second Crusade and, and, and so on and so forth. That's not the approach that I've taken in the book that I've written because I think the story of crusading is a story that is by definition about breadth and about plurality, a word I often find hard to say, plurality. Um, it's about uh, a phenomenon that is very unique to a particular time at the end of the 11th century, which... Uh, over the subsequent centuries, begins to expand in scope, in definition. Um, you, you see crusades that are not, not just targeting the quote-unquote liberation of, of Jerusalem from Islamic rule or the you know the defence of it for uh, under Latin Christian rule, 
But there are crusades and crusading movements in Spain and Portugal, uh, in the south of France against heretics, in the Baltic states uh, against pagans, in um, you know to, uh, against other Christians in Constantinople, against other Christians in Italy, in Sicily, against King John of England. You know, I mean, you take it all the way through to the Tudor period. There is still crusades of a sort, uh, nominal though they are, being leveled against uh, heretical rulers across Europe. So crusading is is something, as I say, that's particular to the, the end of the 11th century, but uh, it sort of explodes over subsequent centuries and, and really takes in almost all parts of Western Europe through to uh, the Middle East. And that, that was one of the attractions for me of, of writing this particular story, because it is uh, a story that ranges over vast geographical um, uh, territories that takes us from, you know, the British Isles all the way through in in some aspects to um, the Far East, because, you know, the Mongols are a part of the crusading story. And I, I'm, this is a personal thing, but I'm, I'm drawn to epic stories, to big storytelling, to long periods of time, to, to big uh, geographical landscapes on, on which to work. Um, so that that's another attraction of the story. And in that context, presumably, it would be exactly the wrong thing to do to define the word crusade in some narrow technical way and then use that to circumscribe the story, not least because that kind of terminology often is a reflection of hindsight, isn't it? I mean, if we're talking about the first crusade, nobody on the first crusade knew it was the first crusade because they didn't know there were going to be the second, third and fourth ones happening afterwards. When does the word crusade even even start getting used? So th- that was another very important point in my approach to the book, which you, and you're absolutely right. No one's going, well, I don't know if I'll join the first crusade. I might wait for the second one, see if this, <laughs> this takes off. These are all historical terms that that way, way post-date the events they describe. However, the reason, one of the reasons I called this book Crusaders and added, you know, the extra consonant in the word is that there was a term very early on contemporaneous to the events we're talking about for people who joined these sort of funny missions that were about going and fighting in the name of Christ uh, for the redemption of one's soul. Uh, and that was Crucis Ignati, um, those signed with the cross. And that physically meant you would either have a, a sort of a cloth cross uh, sewn to the shoulder or breast of your clothes to, to illustrate the fact you'd taken crusading vows. Or if you're sort of a particularly extreme crusader, you might have carved a cross into your forehead or branded it on your skin. It, to be marked out as a crusader was a, a binary thing during this this period we're talking about, which, you know, let's define it from the, you know, 1090s through to, in, in the way I describe it, the 1490s, you either were a crusader or you weren't. And so I think that's a more convenient definition of, of the story than to, what I don't, I never really want to do in the books I write is get bogged down in technical historiographical debates. I mean, one understands them, but not, they have no place in the narrative. And particularly if they're using terminology that contemporaries actually weren't using. Whereas, exactly. as you say, if being a crusader was something that meant something to people in the Middle Ages, whereas the Crusades with a capital letter wasn't quite fixed as an idea in the same way that we have it now. Yeah, no, you're, you're, that's absolutely right. And um, and it has a secondary focus, of, of course, because I'm writing a book that I hope lots of people will, um, will want to read. And by focusing on crusaders... It allows me, as a as an author, as a writer, as a historian, to tell human stories, to tell stories, and that that's the way I've a, a arranged it in this book. It's each chapter 
is a sort of point of view chapter taking somebody who is involved in a particular phase of crusading history and you you open up the world through their eyes. There's a technique that I, I sort of really seriously started to develop in my book about the Templars. In the first chapter of that, I'd written a sort of survey of the Holy Land through the eyes of a pilgrim, a British pilgrim called Seowulf, who turned up in the Kingdom of Jerusalem three years after, or thereabouts, the, the First Crusade, 1102-ish. And I used his experience of, of, of arriving after being shipwrecked um, in the port of Jaffa, going to Jerusalem, exploring Bethlehem and Nazareth, to, to, to paint the landscape of the Holy Land as it existed at that time. And I found it a very successful you know, narrative technique. Uh, and so I was wondering all the time as I was writing Templars, um, could we use this technique and blow it out to do the whole of the cru- you know, the crusading period and and take what I've actually chosen is 27 chapters and each one of them will will use a certain person's viewpoint to throw you into the narrative, you know, at the deep end. Um, so th- all of this is to say that the, the choice of focusing on crusaders rather than the crusades um, is, I think, probably more historically uh, authentic and also more narratively exciting. It works superbly well, I have to say, to get this human experience within this massive, epic story. Um, and and what I was wondering as I read was how you went about structuring something that is block by block, building into a coherent narrative that gives us a sense of these centuries of conflict out of such an extraordinary array of different sorts of information. I mean, you you start, the, your introduction starts, we, we start off um, uh, counterintuitively at Abertivy, um Cardigan, I think, in West Wales. Um, and by the end of the book, we're in a situation where there are two or sometimes three different popes existing at the same time, and a crusade might well mean Christians fighting each other because they're loyal to different popes. I mean, this is a mess of a, a period in lots of ways. How did you construct a narrative that works out of this? Yeah, you're right. I mean, in some ways, the crusades are the original sort of medieval hot mess. But that's the challenge for me. You know, I, I'm a very, and getting more more so as I get older, a very architectural writer. And I'm I'm kind of almost drawn to this these sort of subjects like intellectual puzzles so i'll i'll define physically how i work because that that will probably give you a sense of of how these books are constructed a few years ago um in my office i covered one wall in corkboard i think i've talked about this on a bbc um, history extra podcast before but I'll, I'll repeat myself and it's important enough to be it's important repeated, enough to repeat <laughs> and it sounds mundane and uh but it's it's important i covered a whole wall in corkboard and that allows me to pin up pieces of a4 paper covered in my weird horrible scraggly handwriting in sharpie pen um containing themes characters and bits of the story that i want to include and then to move them around and to start to see uh, the shape of the book at large unfold color coded so, you've got people themes and i all, use different all, color sharpies yeah, yeah. yeah i mean i use black for basic information and then i usually I, I take two colors and kind of circle one for themes and one for character um i then sort of start to think i've, and I've usually got a sense very early on for what the architecture of the story is going to be i mean it would uh, having written about the Templars, I knew the shape of the crusading story. 
and I just had this gut feeling that it was going to work well in three parts. That probably came, if I'm being really honest, from Stephen Runciman, who's you know classic, you know 1950s chronicle of the of the Crusades, focused somewhat or skewed towards um, Byzantium, uh, was arranged in three parts. Um, and covered the first crusade, then the kingdom of Jerusalem, and then the, so a, a third part called the kingdom of Acre, which mopped up all the rest of the, the crusades. So I, I kind of felt that that architecture would be reliable and a good way to arrange this story. I then sort of thought, well, how many chapters per part? You know, I, I don't want to write a book that's longer than a, you know, a certain number, of, 150, 160,000 words. Okay, it's going to be nine chapters per part. And then you just start arranging the material. And, and I start thinking, okay, what's, what, what are going to make compelling chapters with um, a serious historical point underpinning them? Who are the characters I can find within each of these episodes to take us on, a, a, on an exciting point of view journey through that part of the story? And I scribble and I move and I change. And I, I, do, I do a few weeks of that work. And while I'm doing it, I play loud techno, drum bass, um, some hip hop, but, but it's a bit too verbal normally. Yeah, not um, too many words. Too many yeah. words. Yeah. Some classical music. Uh, you know, I, I play a lot of loud music and I don't sit down and I, I sort of pace around like a madman, scribbling and scribbling and moving bits of paper. And it's a sorry sight, really. Um, but it works for me. And I've, I've over the years, I've, I've found that this is a technique that's, that works well. And, and certainly I felt like writing Crusaders yeah, this is the, the only way to cut through this material. Because you have some parts of the story that just you just know they're going to work. You know there's going to be a chapter that's, so let's say chapter eight or nine of the book, that's about the siege of Jerusalem, 1099. A it's episodic. Set, set piece. A big set piece. It's episode nine of Game of Thrones. It's the big battle, right? You know that's going to work. But then there's other times when, you know, let's say where in the story could it be? I would be looking at... Uh, let's stick close to what I was just talking about. The, the beginning of the 12th century, the early kingdom of Jerusalem. It's messy. It's hard to get your head around this. I've got to set up not only what's happening in the Holy Land, but bring in what's happening in crusading in Spain and Portugal with Sicily, which I'd set up, I've set up in the book as the, like the first. How do I do this? And so in that instance, the solution was find a character who's been to all of these places. And the character I found was Sigurd, king of Norway, who arrives on crusade in the first decade of the, of the 12th century, or the second decade, actually, but happens to travel there around the, the, the whole of the Mediterranean world. And so once that puzzle is solved, you know, I kind of put that chapter away and say, you know what, when I come to it, I know what the, the, the structure's going to be. Anyway, this is a long-winded way of saying that um, to arrange a lot of complex material in a coherent form requires a lot of pre-thought before you start writing. And I do more and more of that uh, in order to make the writing not just easy, but possible. So a plan is formed, your cork board is covered, Ride of the Valkyries or whatever other <laughs> music you've been playing <laughs> has been booming out. Um, and you're ready to start writing. So let's get into the content now. Who went crusading and why? A, a vast array of people went crusading uh, for a vast array of reasons. And that is a very wishy-washy answer, I'm, I'm aware. So let's drill down a little bit. Originally, I think the idea of crusading, as conceived by Pope Urban II in 1095 um, and announced in this sort of great and, and famous uh, set piece at Clermont where Urban sort of gave a sermon and explained, hey, we're going to go 
first to Constantinople, now Istanbul, then onto the Holy Land, and we're going to help defend the the Greek Christians from the Turks, and then we're going to go and liberate Jerusalem. The call was directed at uh, quite a specific group of people. Urban was hoping to recruit knights and the, the fighting men of Western Europe, as we'd now call it, to join this mission because they were capable of going and fighting. And they had the resources, the personal wealth, the, the, the military training and skill, and probably the desire because what was on offer for undertaking this um, bizarre and, uh, and very ambitious uh, mission was a remission of sin. And if you are a knight at the end of the 11th century, the chances are you have accrued quite a lot of sin by virtue of your career. Your career as a knight is to maim and to wound other human beings effectively, uh, to cause trouble. Um, so, you, you know, you've got a lot on your slate that could do with being wiped clean. So so this is a deal, this is an idea aimed at the, the, the military classes. That they can do more of the fighting and maiming, do your fighting. but wipe out the effects of the previous fighting and maiming. Exactly it's a great so. deal, actually, isn't it's it? It's a fantastic piece of uh, mental gymnastics as well, isn't it? To say, you've been caught, you've been fighting the wrong people and that's sinful. Go fight the right people and that will be not only not sinful, but, you know, you'll be, you know, what's the, the, the analogy in a pub? You'll be taking some, a few quid off your tab. However, and this is really the story of crusading all over, Urban's call is much more successful, I think, than he realizes. So within months, really, of, of, of Clermont and 1095 and the preaching tour around southern and eastern France, northwestern France that follows, people really latch onto this idea and not just the knightly classes that Urban has in mind. Ordinary townsmen, in some cases peasants, uh, people without many resources, without great fighting skill are, are captivated by this idea. It becomes the, the new hot thing. Go on a big adventure to the east, um, remit some of your sins. Th this really takes root. And so what you see uh, in 1096 going into 1097, is what we'd now call populist demagogue preachers going around whipping up ordinary people. Come on, we're going to have a go at this, and we're going to go right away. And you have the the, um, the dolorous spectacle uh, then of riots against non-Christians, particularly Jews, uh, particularly in the Rhineland, um, people being beaten, robbed, killed, murdered in this febrile atmosphere um, a rather bigoted, febrile atmosphere. And then, of course, very predictably, the People's Crusade, uh, as, as it's sometimes known, uh, led by demagogues, including Peter the Hermit, um, come to a very sticky end because as soon as they march out of Europe, which is, is achievement in, in itself, and get towards Constantinople, they cause an awful lot of trouble, get themselves cut to pieces and, and mostly die of either disease or starvation or, or being kind of killed by... Um, foreigners who don't really want them marauding across their country like a group of England football fans, right? Following on from the People's Crusade, you then have the actual knightly classes who go on what's sometimes called the Prince's Crusade. So even within that small um, little slice of crusading history, which is the beginnings of the First Crusade, you, you, we can say that knightly classes went on crusade for reasons of their own. Ordinary people from Europe went on crusade for reasons of their own. The idea of the crusade sort of commingled that of uh, the military campaign with that of the pilgrimage, you know, to a holy place and Jerusalem being, as we know from medieval maps, the center of the world, the place of Christ's ministry and passion. Th this is something that's got 
a bit for everybody. So you see an enormous number of people go for an enormous range of reasons. Now, as, as we spool the, the story forward, we start to see crusading expand, not only uh, geographically, but in terms of the reasons for which crusades are preached. It just gets wider and wider, the, the pool uh, of people and, from whom you can draw. And particularly once Jerusalem actually falls right. to the First Crusade. I mean, the First Crusade achieves its objective rather <laughs> shockingly. And uh, so then what we see in the Second Crusade is a lot of rulers thinking, well, if that yeah. were, I want a piece of that action. I mean, it, it's it's a strange phenomenon, isn't it, that, that, that the success breeds uh, an attempt at takeover yeah. um, from the original plan. The success of the First Crusade is genuinely astonishing and um so astonishing that uh it it really does seem to be that god is on the side of the first crusaders and that this really might be the sort of thing that god actually did want because after all if all war was generally interpreted as god's will at work in the world then this rather strange and unprecedented movement succeeding in recapturing jerusalem the center of the world as you've said what else could it be than God's hand it intervening? Shouldn't have, it shouldn't have worked. I mean, if, if you just think about it, the distances alone on which all of these thousands of people travelled from, you know, from leaving their homes in 1096, 1097 uh, and marching out of Western Europe, down the Danube, through the Balkans, to Constantinople, getting across the, um, the Bosphorus, all the way through Asia Minor, which is mostly in the hands of hostile powers, you know, um, Turkic rulers. Out of Asia, you know, a very difficult country, Asia Minor, you know, Turkey today, um, mountainous, hot, um, full of people who don't want you there and cut you to pieces for being there. Hundreds of miles across Asia Minor, down through the mountains to Antioch in northern Syria, a months and months long siege of Antioch, which almost everyone almost starves to death. Out of Antioch, more military campaigns, back, winning battles all the way, get to Jerusalem, take Jerusalem. I mean, this is ridiculous. It's mind-boggling, It should isn't it? not have happened. And, uh, it, yeah, it, it's extremely hard to explain, uh, even to us now, let alone to the people who took part at a time in which, uh, as, as you've said, God's will is thought to be much more manifest in the world and in human deed and achievement than it is today. So... So once the, the First Crusade has succeeded, both in terms of succeeding as a sort of illustration of God's will and succeeding in terms of setting up four crusader states, Kingdom of Jerusalem, County of Tripoli, County of Edessa, Principality of Antioch, once all that is set up, there is now a, a, a sort of, a, a, an onus on people to defend it and B, a sort of sense that, uh, which emerges about half a century later, that uh, these were the good old days, and this was a sort of high point of achievement when, when people really were doing the right thing. So what you see, to get back to your question, in the Second Crusade in the 1140s, spurred by the fall of Edessa to uh, the, the Turkic ruler Zengi, um, what you see then is uh, it interpreted as a sense of uh, human failure, that the world has become sinful, and that that's the reason why Edessa has been lost, and that if... if our generation is worth anything at all, then we'll go and repeat the deeds of our fathers, you know, literally follow in their footsteps on this crazy journey uh, and go and um, and kind of redeem our sins, but also redeem ourselves uh, by doing what they did. I mean, the Second Crusade is a total disaster. 
um, for exactly those reasons. Uh, because, uh, as is amply illustrated, the First Crusade was a bit of a one-off. Um, it was not easy to repeat. Uh, plus, when you have kingly egos involved, uh, kingly there's egos. a whole new layer of, of complication. Right. Well, you know, when, when your crusade leaders, instead of being kind of hardened warriors like Bermond of Toronto, um, you know, Godfrey of Bouillon, this man who fought a bear on his way to, uh, <laughs> to across Asia Minor, and that was just sort of, you know, a Monday morning. Um, when you have crusades being led by people like Louis VII of France, you know, at that time, married to Ellen of Aquitaine, who, has, as we know very well, described him as more a monk than a king. Uh, wh whether that were or were not true, he was certainly not the, the sort of military leader you needed to take you on a march across Asia Minor. Uh, yeah, once, once you throw kingly egos into that mix, um, it all starts to go a bit wrong. It's such an interesting... I mean, obviously, the whole story is fascinating, but you started as a historian of medieval England as am I. Um, and the story of medieval England can very often get told as a rather architectural story in a different sense, state building. That Once the Normans have taken over, then we have this uh, narrative that is of the English state being built, and it all seems rather um, coherent and, and the march of progress and so on, or it can do, um, depending on how it's being told. Whereas the story of the Crusades it just seems so chaotic, the role of chance, the um, rewards that are up for grabs, the possibility of, I mean, the First Crusade was so many sort of younger sons making their fortunes. Did it give you, uh, just before we get into some of the more individual stories, did it give you a perspective on medieval English history to be looking right across Europe and beyond in this way? Yeah, I think I think the work I've done in the last four or five years, which has has taken my focus away from um, medieval England, sort of within the confines of the island, or sometimes, you know, there's an expedition to France, which uh, ends well or badly, depending on when we're talking about, has really changed the way that I think about um, medieval England. Because certainly what you see with the Crusades is how connected the Plantagenet dynasty uh and England, you know, in, in many more respects than just the personalities of, of its ruling dynasty, was to the continent, to, uh, yes, to France, but also to, you know, the, the, the German kingdom, to Sicily. I mean, I, I, I remember writing about Plantagenets and, and scratching, you know, we scratch our head. The great, great head scratcher of Plantagenet studies is when Henry III decides to, uh, he's going to invade Sicily. And everyone in England goes, oh, my God, that's the worst idea ever. And I remember the, when I was writing about this stuff, thinking, well, yeah, I mean, it sounds totally absurd, just in and of itself. And I've come to realize in, recently that the reason everyone was saying this is an absurd idea wasn't necessarily just because Sicily was miles away. It was really because Henry III was, wasn't up to the job. Um, there were deep connections between England and Sicily, and many of them were mapped because of, of in part because of the Crusades and because Europe was much smaller than we, we are accustomed to think if we, if we only look at, at medieval England in its own terms. And particularly if we're thinking about sea travel, because um, we need to think of the seas as the thoroughfares, not uh, land travel much more, much more difficult. So actually the Mediterranean, we ought to factor into our thinking about medi medieval England much more than we, we do. do. Yeah, I mean, yeah. the routes uh, as travelled by 
many generations of crusaders if you're from northwest europe and we could be talking about um people going in the aftermath of the first crusade this is the route that people take on the second crusade on the fifth crusade you know it's a reliable route to get there from northwest europe is you go england you bounce over by ship you sort of follow the French coast, Bay of Biscay, stop off in Galicia to visit Santiago de Compostela, terrorize a few people on the coast of Portugal, whoever's there to be beaten up, round, you know, the Algarve, I suppose, straight to Gibraltar, uh, Balearic Islands, down to Sicily, stay a bit on Sicily because it's quite, you know, quite a nice place to overwinter, and then off you go across the Eastern Med um, to the Holy Land. That was the way you went. That was the way everyone went. I mean, you could go overland, but it was a, a lot more difficult. Um, and so, of course, there were these connections. This was just the route that everybody knew and everybody took. And then, and now, suddenly, I start to realize, ah, so this weird obsession that you get in the 14th, 13th, 14th century with places like Sicily and Castile and Portugal, and why does John of Gaunt want to be the king of Castile? They were much more connected than we realize. Um, and I, that's one of the reasons I'm... I'm I've really enjoyed stepping out and doing some crusading history because it has thrown an entirely new light on the way that I think about England. I'm sure I'm going to come back to that history uh, in, in years to come, but it will be with quite a different perspective. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. You just have this imperious tone of, do you think you can possibly face down, you know, we the mighty conquerors who've, taken over almost the entire known world we will cut your babies to pieces and eat your fathers and throw your women out of tall towers um the only thing you can do is come to us and bow uh, in obeisance to us this episode is brought to you by indeed we're driven by the search for better but when it comes to hiring the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all don't search match with indeed Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. eBay Motors is here for the ride. 
With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. One of the things that's very striking in the book is that you, um, this is a, this is a, 360 perspective. You're not telling the story from the point of view only of the men who took up arms to go and fight for the Holy, Holy Land. You're telling stories, looking through the eyes of people on both sides of the conflict all the time. You're also telling stories of women involved in the Crusades as well as men. Uh, you're ranging geographically right across, you know, almost becomes almost global history, doesn't it? Um, Pick out a few of your favourite characters. Tell us who among your vast cast you're particularly fond of. Well, the word cast is the right word. And, and part of the, the architectural build of this book that we were talking about a, a few minutes ago uh, was casting. It's a casting job. And it was incredibly good fun. One of the things I really wanted to make sure I didn't do was to write a book about dead white French men with beards. Uh, partly because I've had enough of those guys. I mean, there are some in the book. There we ought to say there's room there's, there's for a few. Be. It's called Crusaders. Look. <laughs> but... uh, on the other hand, guess what? It's the 21st century. And uh, there's now a, a license and even an obligation to think about people who weren't white and French and bearded. Not that that's a bad thing. Just that there are other people out there. So let's talk about some of my favorite. I think my favorite character in the whole of this book is a woman called Margaret of Beverly. Margaret Beverly has the great honor, I suppose, in a sense, or, or, but also the, the, um, the difficult task of launching part three of this book, because it's through her that I talk about the Third Crusade. Now, the Third Crusade is probably the most famous crusade, because it's the one that Richard the Lionheart went on, and uh, although he didn't joust with Saladin, as is so often depicted in cartoons dating right back to the medieval period, he sort of jousted with him by diplomatic means. Uh, it's the Crusade of the Siege of, of Acker 1191, and so on and so forth. But we've heard that story a million times. And I've written that story. I wrote it in Plantagenets. I mean, I took out some of Richard's crusade, and, and that was the sort of missing part of that book, because it wasn't germane to the story then. But I've, I feel like we all know that story. The challenge then is, how do you tell the story of the Third Crusade across, say, 8,000 words, seven or 8,000 words, if you're not going to use Richard and Saladin as your kind of uh, pair of protagonists, antagonists. So I found Margaret of Beverly. And um, and this happened, this sort of thing happened quite often. I was reading a very, you know, worthy scholarly book called Gendering the Crusades, an unpromising title, and the, my, my copy had not been borrowed that many times from the library. However, it was full of incredibly brilliant information because it was about mainly about women in the Crusades. Oh, my God, no one ever really thinks about that uh, in, you know, outside the sphere of gendered history in the Middle Ages. There are fleeting references to this woman called Margaret of Beverly, and the, the one fact that is reliably mentioned about her is that she was, so it was said, on the walls of Jerusalem in 1187, after the Battle of Hattin, at which the uh, Crusader Kingdom's great army had been wiped out by Saladin on July the 4th, 1187. Saladin had swept through the Crusader states, uh, was besieging Jerusalem, and Margaret of Beverly 
happened to be in the city as effectively a tourist, and she helped fight Saladin's armies with a cooking pot on her head as a helmet. She was lobbing rocks at their heads. I thought, God, that sounds good. That's and and started digging in and found that, well, lo and behold, there's a whole account of Margaret of Beverly's adventures, her life. Her, now, the account you have to handle carefully as historical evidence because it's it's framed as a sort of pseudo-saint's life. Nevertheless, it contains some details that are partly verifiable by other means and some human details that just ring so true that, you, you know, one feels licensed to use them in this in this context, if you do so carefully. Margaret Beverly's story is, is briefly this. She's born in Jerusalem to parents who appear to be sort of hippie types. Anyway, they're out there on, pil- on pilgrimage. They have Margaret. They then go home and she's Margaret Beverly because she's raised in Yorkshire, you know. She has a much younger brother called Thomas. Her parents die. She sort of raises Thomas to the sort of age where he can be packed off to a Cistercian monastery. And then she decides to go on what we would now call a gap year. Um, (laughs) She goes off to Jerusalem, I guess, to see where she was born and to go on pilgrimage. Great thing to do. She winds up there at a bad time, as I've described. Ayyubid's army, Saladin's army, is outside the walls. She has a cooking pot on her head. She's throwing rocks at them using a slingshot. She's almost killed when an enormous uh, sort of missile rock lands very near her and throws up shrapnel, cuts her quite badly, but she survives. However, Jerusalem falls to Saladin's army. There's not a massacre because a, a peace deal is brokered by which the Christian inhabitants of Jerusalem can buy their freedom at a very reasonable price uh, and be released unscathed with whatever of their possessions they can carry. She takes up that offer. She manages to raise the finance. However, a few kilometers outside the Jaffa Gate, or whichever gate she leaves Jerusalem by, she is captured, enslaved for about 18 months. Now, slavery is a big part of the, the crusading story. Uh, she's enslaved. She has then to work as, uh, as a slave, you know, forced labor through two winters and a, a hot summer. And if you've been to Palestine or or Israel today in the summer, it gets pretty hot. Uh, So she has a a very miserable time. um, And she says, my chains rusted with my tears, you know, and this is, this is, this is part of the nature of of the story that she tells. However, she has a bad time. Then lo and behold, in the city of Tyre, not too far away from where she's being kept captive and forced to work, a wealthy merchant is celebrating his son's, I think it's his son's birthday or maybe marriage. And decides as a, as a show of his of sort of uh, his kind of benevolence and um, and and wealth, he's going to, f- to buy some slaves and free them. And so Margaret gets bought and freed. However, she's then in an even worse position than she was before because she ain't even getting fed. So she wanders around the kingdom of Jerusalem in what exists of it in rags for a, a few months until eventually, while the third crusade is going on all around her, she uh, manages to take ship with some of the fleet that's leaving after Richard the Lionheart's crusade, and goes home back to Western Europe, tracks down her brother Thomas, um, who's now a, a fully-fledged Cistercian monk, tells a story, and between them, they write it down. And it's still there. It's not an English translation, but it's still around. You can read it. It tells all these amazing adventures. Now, you come across a character like this, who's there for the duration of the Third Crusade, She's not negotiating the peace treaty. She's not fighting at the siege of Acre, but she's there. She's, she has this amazing adventure. She's very seldom written about. Nobody knows about. What a gift to a historian. So I use her 
to launch the, the story of the Third Crusade. Now, Richard the Lionheart, of course, has to come into this. So does Saladin. Um, but once I'd found her and started building um, the story of the Third Crusade through a woman's experience, I was then kind of just on the lookout for other women involved in the Third Crusade. And your mind doesn't have to wander very far before you go, huh, well, Richard the Lionheart on his way to the Third Crusade stopped in Sicily to pick up his sister, Joanna, who had been Queen of Sicily. Her husband had died, King William. The throne had been taken by his cousin, Tancred. He'd been very beastly to Joanna, taken away a load of her stuff, including sort of rather nice kind of dining table and various other objects that had been gifted by Henry II. Uh, you know, so this is a kind of nice adventure. But then she joins Richard on the rest of the crusade. She goes to, uh, she leaves Sicily. She's in Cyprus when Richard conquers that. She's in the Holy Land. Berengaria of Navarre, Richard's wife. So now I have three women in Margaret, Joanna, and Berengaria. You foreground their experience throughout the chapter, bookend their experiences at the start and finish of the chapter, and suddenly, wow, here's the Third Crusade in a way we haven't seen it before. Through the eyes of people who are normally totally ignored or, or play like, you know, they're, 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 they're walk-on parts, aren't they're they? They're walk-on parts. Because Richard and Saladin are at the centre, but we, as you say, we've seen Richard and Saladin before, so put them at the back of the stage doing what we know they're doing and find out what the human experience of being either collateral of one kind or another, damage or, or or bargaining chips, or just what it was like to be there as a different kind of person. Yeah. I mean, and, and you don't then have to do very much more. And it's very satisfying to, to do that sort of work. For me, it, look, it's not a totally new source because um, Margaret Beverly's story had been transcribed and published but no one ever uses it. So there is a little bit of that, that his sense of historical adventure of coming across a new way to use a source. There's the incredible satisfaction as a writer where you find a new way of telling a story. And there's also the sense that actually this is a, a, an important way to look at the Third Crusade through the eyes of somebody who's normally ignored. Um, all of that, I, I just find immensely rewarding and and. Uh, and I hope that it comes across in the read as well, because uh, it's, I, it's, I find that, so she's my, the original question was who, your favorite character. And she is one of my favorite characters, not only because of uh, the, the mad adventure she goes on, but because of what she gave me as a writer um, when I discovered her, her tale. And who are your favorite characters on the other side from the Frenchman with beards in the Islamic world who stands out for you? Well, one of them comes in, into the story quite early. One of the, the really difficult task of starting a book about crusading and about crusaders is getting all the plates spinning, getting all the different aspects of the story going. Because as we've established, I don't think crusading can be explained alone just with reference to, to what's going on in Jerusalem. You have to understand Sicily. You've got to understand Spain and Portugal. You should probably understand the Baltic a little bit as well. And you definitely need to understand Byzantium. So there's a Sicilian poet, Ibn Hamdis, who I start the second chapter with, who uh, the first chapter has been in Sicily, and it's been about Count Roger of Sicily and the Norman conquest of Sicily from the Arabs, which is sort of pre-story of Christian versus uh, Islamic um, conflict in the Mediterranean, but that's not in Jerusalem, but that foreshadows a lot of what's going to happen. Um, and it's a great story. I was then on to, okay, well, I've got to, I've, I've brought the readers into Sicily and now I've got to take them to Spain. How do you do that? And then you find this poet and, well, when the Normans conquer Sicily, he gets kicked out of his home. Where does he go? Well, he goes to southern Spain because the Islamic courts of the Taifa kings, uh, and in this case, the king of Seville, Al-Mutamid, 
uh, he goes and seeks patronage there and sort of writes amusing poems for whoever wants them written and has a sort of gay old time drinking and kind of carousing and, and really having fun at the court of Seville. And through his eyes and his poetry, I could then start to unpack what turned out to be the beginnings of the Reconquista, the, the wars between the Christian kingdoms of northern Spain, by, you know, by Spain I mean the Iberian Peninsula, and the various Muslim powers, be they the Taifa kings, the Amoravids, the Almohads, depending on which time we're talking about, those wars within Spain, which are a really important part of the crusading story. So I was delighted to come across an Islamic poet that would take us not only geographically from chapter one to chapter two, but it would also give us a new way of looking at the um, at the beginnings of the Reconquista. So that, that was a, a very favorite character. At the start of, I mean, I mentioned Byzantium. I love Anna Komnini. I mean, she, what an amazing, she was the daughter of the Byzantine emperor, Alexios I Komnenos, who was in some way responsible for the First Crusade by sending a call to the West, come and help me kick the Turks out of Asia Minor. His daughter, Anna Komnini, wrote this brilliant account called the Alexiad, which is a, an indispensable source for the First Crusade, particularly from the Greek perspective. Uh, but she's just a great writer. She's obviously an incredibly impressive uh, intellect and scholar in her own right. She's there at the forefront. She's seen it all. In the Alexiad, she's writing this really quite uh, stylish, but also very cunning piece of propaganda, trying to exonerate her father for all his mistakes, uh, which partially works, but you can you can really see what she's at. So that's great fun to work with. And she, and she lives a long time. She still she sees the beginnings of the Second Crusade, so she she bridges a lot of chapters in the book. So she's a great character, and I I, I put her on quote unquote the other side, partly because she's not a man, partly because she's of of this world that sits between, you know, the Islamic Near East and the Latin Christian West, which is Byzantium, without an understanding of which you cannot really analyze the Crusades properly. So she's cool. Uh, I think at the other end of the period, you have Baibars, um, you know, the, the, the great Mamluk sultan um, who kickstarts the, uh, the, the final destruction of the Crusader states. He's a, he's a fascinating and terrifying character in equal measure. God, there are just so many characters. Uh, so th- those are some of my favourites. Give us a minute on the Mongols. Oh, the Mongols. <laughs> gift, another gift, the Mongols. <laughs> Towards the end of the crusading period, all bets are suddenly kind of off. And partly that's because of the phenomenon we talked about a little bit earlier, which is of uh, mission creep in crusading, whereas everything suddenly becomes... Any war between a Christian power and a non-Christian power, and subsequently a Christian power and anyone, basically, (laughs) uh, can be classified as a crusade. In the sort of middle decades of the 13th century. So 1230s a bit, 1240s, 1250s, 1260s. The Mongols are sweeping out of Mongolia, as it is now, into first, you know, through Persia, sack Baghdad, and and turn up in Syria, you know, go north through the Caucasus, uh, turn up in sort of Poland and Hungary and places that are really a little bit too close to home. Um, And the spectre of the Mongols is... It's like Armageddon. It really is. You know, the rumors, and it's great uh, what you see in kind of letters and sources from the time. You start to hear rumors in the 1220s, 1230s. Hey, there are these guys causing trouble in the East. We don't really know what they're about. It could be Prester John, you know, the mysterious, legendary Eastern Christian king. You know, pretty soon turns out not to be Prester John. It's 
apocalypse on horseback and it's coming your way. Um, so the Mongols are, are absolutely good. And, and uh, one of the things I like most about the Mongols is the imperious tone of their letters, which are, are great to a historian like, you know, like we are, where you, you want texture and color and life in your histories. Um, because if you take someone like Hulagu, uh, who was the Mongol ruler of the Persian Ilkhanate with whom Louis IX, the great Saint Louis, um, the crusading king of France in the 13th century, corresponded in the hope that they could uh, set up an alliance against their mutual Islamic enemies. Hulagu does not mess around when he writes. And you know, and you just have this imperious tone of, do you think you can possibly face down, you know, we the mighty conquerors who've taken over almost the entire known world? We will cut your babies to pieces and eat your fathers and throw your women out of tall towers. Um, the only thing you can do is come to us and bow uh, in obeisance to us. Uh, lots of love, Hulago, King of the Mongols. <laughs> you know, it's, it's just fantastic. And they're, they're a real wild card in the story because, you know, when, when I've talked a lot about story structure, um, but it's so important because, you, you know, you read these histories and you get a bit to the point, sort of two-thirds of the way through the, the crusading story, we're like... And then another crusade came along and another bunch of sort of rulers of Egypt and Syria did battle versus another bunch of armies coming out of the, out of the West. Hold on. <laughs> wow, we've got, a new, we've got a new bunch of writers in, on this TV show. <laughs> and, and all bets are off. It's like aliens landed. The Mongols just come in and smash everything in front of them. The whole story goes up in the air and, and it gets really exciting again. So yeah, the Mongols are... Uh, they're a... a a gift to the historian. Uh, I'm very glad I wasn't around in, let's say, Baghdad in 1258, where they were um, rolling the uh, Abbasid Caliph up in a carpet and riding the horses over him and chucking all the books from the, the House of Wisdom, the great Baghdad library, into the Tigris so that the river ran black with ink. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm happier here than there, but great to write about. Now, your travels were, I'm guessing, a little easier and more sedate than those of many of the Crusaders. But you did go to Jerusalem in the course of researching this book, I gather. Did crusading leave its mark on you in Jerusalem? Uh, yes, in more than one way. <laughs> I went to Jerusalem, well, it was late summer or early autumn last year, I think. Uh, and I hadn't been for a while. And um, you can never recreate either in memory or 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 in physical experience, that, that that thing of going to Jerusalem. It's like, even today, or still today, it's like nowhere else I've ever been on earth. Um, and the Crusades have certainly left their mark on Jerusalem. And, uh, you know, as soon as I, I went with my wife, and we, we got off the plane in Tel Aviv, you got a car, and it's whatever it is, 80 kilometers or so, something like that, through the Judean Hills to Jerusalem. Now, get in the car, you know, booked a car, get in, Driver's a young guy, maybe he's 30, something like that. Uh, Israeli guy in the back of the car. What are you doing in, uh, you know, in Israel? Oh, well, I'm writing a book about the crusade, says I naively. I should have just said, you know, whatever. I should, shouldn't have said that. Well, your man starts up about Reynolds of Chatillon. He goes, oh, do you know Reynolds? I said, who? Because you know Reynolds, you know, uh, he's from Chatillon. Like, this is like, it's like his pen pal or something from France. I'm like, hang on, he's talking about Reynaud Chatillon. So Reynaud Chatillon, uh, a, you know, one of the most notorious um, crusader lords who was locked in prison um, in Aleppo 
uh, for 16 years by Nur al-Din, who, uh, once he was let out, his pathological hatred of Islam led him to plan pirate raids around the Red Sea. It was rumored he, tr- he was going to go to Medina and steal Muhammad's body and take it, you know, take it as a sort of traveling show around the Near East. Uh, he was uh, the, captured the Battle of Hattin. He was hacked to bits. You know, Saladin struck the first blow in his execution. Bloody, bloody, blah. Notorious guy, not someone you want around your house for dinner. Our driver, the, like literally the first person we, we encounter um, in, quote-unquote, the Holy Land, starts going on and on and on about Reynaud Chatillon as though he were the last guy who'd been in the back of the car. And, of course, then, we, you know, we, we spend a, a few days in Jerusalem. I had, I had a strange experience uh, in that, I mean, I, I loved being there, uh, but I, I felt like I was definitely not welcomed by any of the members of the three major Abrahamic faiths in that I went to the Holy Sepulchre and I, I was sort of shooed and, and chivied around by the the, uh, uh, the Franciscans who, who guard Christ's empty tomb. And, I, you know, I went past the Wailing Wall and I was really kind of just told off by the, you know, the Israeli security there. I tried to poke my head around the door of the Al-Aqsa Mosque and the guys guarding were like, get away, infidel. Like, does, does anyone want to claim me? And it would appear not. Anyway... My great, greatest and most lasting achievement, I suppose, or, or experience in Jerusalem was to go to a shop called uh, Razuk Tattoo, which um, I'm sure some listeners will know about, which is, as, as you come in the Jaffa Gate, uh, you take the second left and there's a little tattoo shop. Uh, well, we're sitting in a studio today in Hammersmith in London, and I'd say the shop, is it's a nice big studio, but the shop's probably about half the size of the studio. Um, it may be, for listeners, it's probably about the size of your downstairs lavatory. But Wazim Razuk, the, the sort of... I guess, what, what is he? Maybe he's the patriarch of the Razuk dynasty today. Uh, is a kind of cool biker dude with like hair down to his shoulders and who rides a Harley Davidson and does about 40 tattoos a day, but specializes in pilgrim tattoos. And the Razuks claim to have had a tattoo shop in Jerusalem since the year 1300. Is that true? I don't know. They could have been going since 1983 for all I know. But like everything else in Jerusalem, it's not really the historical... It's the fact that everyone believes that this is the the case. Anyway, I I came away from Razuk Tattoo with uh, what I'm showing you now is on my left wrist. Um, Razuk has... Well, it's a Jerusalem cross with little bits of sort of two, three crowns um, and part of the word Jerusalem underneath it. Uh, the way they apply that tattoo is is he has some very ancient kind of like ink block stamps. Do, does that make sense? You know, this sort of thing when you're a kid, you have little letters, you put them in the, the ink pad and then dab it onto paper. Well, it's that sort of thing. His oldest one, he says, is 500 years old and the design would want to be much bigger. Uh, all that's left of it is, so he dips it in the ink, blomp, puts it in your skin, blomp, gets his tattoo, gone out, bzzz, and there you go. Now you've got a pilgrim tattoo. And uh, the idea is, I suppose, that you're now part of a tradition going back um, to the year 1300. So um, that is my physical connection with the crusading period. Uh, well, that and the book I've written about. And that brings me very neatly to my last question. When did the crusades end or have they ended? Well, uh, we, we, we've come full circle because here again is a historiographical debate. Um it's possible to argue that 1291, fall of uh, Acre or Acre uh, to the Mamluks, which was the sort of the end, really, or the summer of 1291 with the fall of Acre, Beirut, uh, Chateau Pellerin, the, the, the Templar Fortress there. And the retreat of the Kingdom of Jerusalem to Cyprus that year marked the end of the Crusader states. 
And it's it's been argued, it's plausible just about to say that's the end of the Crusades, as we now know, because that was the end of the Crusader kingdoms. Now, as we were saying about the First Crusade, nobody in 1292 was going, well, that's done and dusted, let's move on. What they were saying was, how are we going to win the Crusader kingdoms back? I've got a good idea, let's have a crusade. The Crusades go on. I think the, probably the best end point, if we're writing about the medieval Crusades, which is really you know what I'm in the business of doing, it's 1492, because that's the, the fall of the Alhambra, the end of the Reconquista, the ejection of the last um, Muslim emir of uh, Granada, uh, the fall of Al-Andalus, um, and also the year that Columbus, who's there and witnesses the fall of the Alhambra, sets off on his journey, sponsored in part by the Catholic monarchs who've completed the Reconquista, Ferdinand and Isabella. Columbus sets off, and as we now know, discovers, well discovers for, for Western Europeans anyway, the new world. And all of those energies that had, had previously been being focused eastwards from Western Europe are now turned westwards across the Atlantic. So for me, that feels like a neat way to wrap up the story of, of crusading. However, as we sort of alluded to at the top of, of this podcast, there are many people for whom that definitely isn't the end of crusading. I mean, we still had the Hospitallers on Rhodes and on Malta all the way through to 1798 when Napoleon kicked the Hospitallers out of Malta. Um, the wars previous to that against the Ottomans being classified as crusades. You've got, you know, uh, endless sort of schismatic wars. Um, both before and after the Reformation are classified as crusades. Anything the Pope wants to be a crusade for a very long time it's a crusade. And so in that in that case, well, this is then still the crusading period. But as we alluded to earlier, you can take this story right up to today. Sri Lanka gets bombed. ISIS claim, oh, crusaders, this bloody day is yours, or whatever they say. 2001, as we all know, George W. Bush, a few days after 9-11, stood on the lawn of the White House and said, this, this crusade, this war on terror is going to take a while. Terrible instance of what we now call misspeaking. Um, you know, Christchurch mosque shootings earlier this year. Um, the, the, well, look, the legal case is still ongoing and and um, in New Zealand, but uh, the pictures of the automatic weapons that the perpetrator took into the mosques in Christchurch and shot up all those people with had crusader battles daubed all over them. The names of crusader battles daubed all over them, including um, uh, Echo twelve ninety one. You go back a little while, Anders Bering Breivik, the you know, who shot up the island uh, Utoya in Norway a few years ago, um, was obsessed with the Crusades. Uh, crusader rhetoric is uh, is beloved of the alt right, both in the US and particularly in Eastern Europe, um, and and it's a favourite trope of, of fascists, neo Nazis today. There's a lot of people for whom the Crusades have not finished. And and who who believe that this is still the, an appropriate paradigm through which to explain, understand, and view relations between Islam and Christianity all over the world, between uh, between the West and um, you know and, and Islamic powers in the East, the Middle East. Uh, it's foolishness. It's born foolishness. However, it it still goes on, and and that's you know to take us right back to the beginning. That's why I think uh, I, I wanted to write this book, Crusaders, right now, because all of these things are not just live; they seem to be getting liver. Uh, and unless we continue to think about and understand what the actual Crusades were all about back in the Middle Ages, and to appreciate what a different world this was, and how awful the consequences of these things were, 
we don't have much hope of um, of dealing with the present. Dan, thank you very much. And I can't recommend Crusaders highly enough. That was Dan Jones in conversation with Helen Castor. Crusaders is out now, published by Head of Zeus. And you can read a piece by Dan exploring the motivations of Crusaders in the October issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now and also contains pieces on the Dan Busters raid, Elizabeth I and medieval communists, among other things. Look out for it in all good retailers now. Meanwhile, Dan will be discussing his new book at our History Weekend events at both Winchester and Chester this autumn. You can find out more details and purchase tickets at historyextra.com forward slash events. And if you can't wait that long to hear from him again, he will be returning to this podcast soon to talk with Susanna Lipscomb about her latest book on women of 16th century France. And that's all for today. Thanks for listening. Today's podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. We'll be back on Thursday when Tom Holland will be exploring the history of Christianity. <laughs>